All right, I want to continue uh, sharing a little bit about how to respond to tough times. And I just want to do a little bit of a recap on my sermon two weeks ago. Uh, tough times come to all of us. If you haven't just come out of one, you are in one, or you're about to go into one. And there's only one group of people that don't have problems, and that group are all dead. It, it, it's so important for us to learn when tough times come our way, when difficulties and trials, times of sorrow, valley experiences come our way, is to learn how to respond positively to those things. And we're going to look at ways and principles of how to deal with those situations. Tough times they are no respecter of persons. No matter who you are, whether you're wealthy, you're in a senior position, or whether you're just a blue-collar worker, tough times come to all of us. And a good day can start off as a good day, and all of a sudden it ends as a bad day. It's not a matter of if tough times come to us. It is when tough times come to us. And a problem and a tough time will never leave you the same person. It will change you. And our responses to those tough times will determine whether you move in an upward position or a downward position. Problems plus wrong responses will always have bad results. Problems and good responses will always end with good results. So, there were a few negative responses that we looked at two weeks ago. One was self-pity. Self-pity, that doesn't work. It will drain you of all your positive energy. You'll end up sitting in the corner, feeling very sorry for yourself. Don't go to self-pity. The other is unbelief. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to suffer like this. But you see, every single day, regarding whether we go through mountaintop experiences or valley experiences, every single day is an exercise of faith. And we have to exercise that muscle to make us strong in the Lord. Anger. Anger. It's a very immature and poor response and will separate you. It'll separate you from your family. It'll separate you from your friends. Nobody likes to deal with an angry person. And when you're dealing with an angry person, you just get to the place where you feel that you can't continue any kind of conversation or any further contribution into this person's life. Anger in the mind is poison to the souls, is one proverb. An offense. Offense. And I painted the picture of... Uh, if you take offense, it's like they used to trap birds by putting a box uh, loaded on a stick with a string. And when the, when the bird came and was eating the seed, it pulled the, the string and the stick was pulled out and the box fell. And you know, offense is like finding yourself spiritually and emotionally in a black box. It's not a good place to be. Proverbs 18 and verse 19 says, An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. I mean, that's the Proverbs. I mean, when you've offended a friend, to try and win them back. But Proverbs also, the very next chapter, says in chapter 19 and verse 11, Your glory is to overlook an offense. 
And then I looked at some positive responses. And I first of all shared about the rich young ruler. The story of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. Everything was right about that story, except the end. This was a rich young ruler. He came to Jesus at the right time of his life. He came running to Jesus. He had the right question. He got the right response. Everything was right about that story. And when Jesus gave him and gave him the right answer, he said, you need to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. And he turned around and walked away. The story ends, sadly, because of a bad response, a wrong response. So we looked at two positive responses. And I just want to maybe mention a poem here that I I shared. There are choices you have to make in everything you do. You must always keep in mind the choices you make, make you. And we looked at believe that God is for you. You know, so often we think, God is against us, but he's for you. He's in charge. He's working all things out for good in your life. He seeks your highest good. Even when you go through tough times, he's teaching you character because God is more intent on teaching you character because it is a preparation, this life for eternity. God is more intent on teaching you character than in providing comfort for you. And then the second thing is responding Jesus' way. Always, always respond like Jesus. We can't always choose the things that happen to us, but we can choose to respond. You choose it. You choose your response. I'm sure some of the husbands must have said to their wives, Hey, woman, you're pushing my button now. Some wives are giggling loudly. I wonder, I wonder. Nobody can push your button. I mean, are we like a TV remote control? I mean, I sit sometimes and I go through the channel, duck, 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 choosing a channel that I want. Nobody, your wife, your husband, your, 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 your children, nobody should be able to push your buttons except you. Except you. And we need to choose a godly response. So, that's recapping. If you didn't get it two weeks ago, that's the gist of it. Now today we go on. A negative response, and I've got three, and then we'll go on to two positive responses. Negative response, blaming. Blaming. This is the oldest trick in the book. I'm blaming you. You know? Guess what? There are three fingers pointing back at us. And there's one pointing up to God. I'm blaming you. It's the oldest trick in the world. It started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve took the apple. Adam blamed Eve for giving him the apple. Eve turned around and blamed the serpent. And the serpent couldn't blame anybody because he didn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, it's, a, it's an old, old past. That's as old as I'm surprised that I got that response. And when we're in tough situations, sometimes it's great 
to blame somebody else, to blame a wife or a husband or the children or a business partner or a taxi driver or a salesman. Blaming is a response that comes that produces a result that minimizes our lives. It's no guarantee that you'll grow from that situation of blaming. I read a, a fascinating story. I'm going to tell it to you now. There was a man in a hot air balloon that was going to meet a friend, but he got lost. So in the distance, he saw one person. So he decided that he was going to descend and ask the person which direction he should go. So he descended and he saw that it was a woman. So he came down and he was about 20 meters above the ground. And he said, excuse me, can you help me? I promised to meet a friend about an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. She looked up at him and said, you're in a hot air balloon about 20 meters above the ground. You're between 20 and 21 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. So the guy looked down and said, you must be an engineer. She looked up and said, yes, I am. How did you know that? He said, well, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea as to what to make of this information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you have not been a help at all to me. If anything, you've delayed my trip even more. So she looked back at him and said, you must be in management. <laughs> and he said, I am. And how do you know that? <laughs> and the woman said, well, you don't know where you are or where you're going. You have risen to where you are due to a lot of hot air. You have made a promise which you have no idea how to keep. You expect people beneath you to solve your problem. The fact is that you are in exactly the same position as you were before we met, but somehow now it's my fault. <laughs> That's what blaming does. Huh? Blame never affirms, it always assaults. Blame never restores, it wounds. Blame never solves, it complicates. It never unites, it separates. It never smiles, it frowns. It never forgives, it rejects. It never builds and it destroys. You can fail many times and you can get up and push forward, but you're only a failure when you start to blame somebody. And then discouragement, another negative response just feeling overwhelmed. Nothing effective is taking place in my life. And it comes to us, and can come to us very quickly. Satan loves this tool. He loves to bring discouragement into each and every one of us, and he uses it to his great advantage. There was a garage sale. And Satan put out all his tools. And he had prices on each one of his tools. And people came and they looked at the tools. And there were tools of hatred and envy and jealousy and deceit and lust and lying and pride. And they were all priced as well. But there was one little tool on the side there that was very worn. But it was very expensive. And guys said, 
what is this tool? He says, no, that's the tool of discouragement. He said, why is it so worn? Because I use it often. In actual fact, I use it on everybody. If I can't use these tools to pry somebody's heart open, then I use that one. And it always, always works. It's the tool of discouragement. It's Satan's favorite tool. He uses it all the time. I spoke about Elijah, who was used mightily uh, in the Old Testament, called down fire from heaven. But because of a word that was spoken to him by Jezebel, he went into a place of discouragement. Just like that. And it can turn you from somebody who is powerful into somebody who is pitiful in a moment. Discouragement. Don't go there. And then unforgiveness. If there is any area of the Christian life that I have spoken more about, it's this area of unforgiveness. I've had to deal with this situation in my own life, and I know that it impacts huge numbers of people. When I minister in other congregations and I speak about forgiveness, there's always a bunch, a big bunch of people who respond to unforgiveness. Do you have unforgiveness in your heart? And it's probably from somebody, not necessarily family, somebody who has offended you in the past. See, the interesting thing here is the Lord's Prayer, there is a petition in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our trespasses. I mean, if it was just that, it would be wonderful. God just forgives our sins. But the next line is, as we forgive those who trespass, in condition of, just as we forgive others. So if I forgive, 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 no, but I don't forgive you. We're saying to God, Lord, I want your forgiveness just in the same way as I'm forgiving or unforgiving that person. And that's pretty scary because I need, I want God's ongoing, continued forgiveness in my life. Peter came to Jesus one day and said, how many times must we forgive? Jesus said, 70 times, seven. It's an Hebraism. It's a thing that is on and on into eternity. There's no stopping. You can't do mathematics and say seven times 70 is 490 and, uh, you know, you've been forgiven 489 times and you only got one more chance. No. It needs, if you do it 489 times, it, it'll become habit and you'll just keep on doing it. In other words, you need to forgive for all eternity. How do you know that you've got an unforgiving spirit? It's because uh, you think you're better than others. It's because you're super sensitive. You take personally what other people say. You're suspicious of other people's motives. You feel that you have to withdraw. You can only be a spectator and not a participant. You build up an aggression inside. You're unable to laugh little problems off. You're lonely. You're critical. You're negative. You invent a problem to fight about. You can be in the shower and you think, oh, I'm going to say this to person and, and I'm going to give him what for tomorrow. Ne? Only a few. <laughs> You've allowed something to drop into your heart to make you negative. It's, it, it, 
that's, that's an unforgiving spirit. But you see, unforgiveness is a luxury of the flesh that we can't afford to have. Don't go there. Don't go there. See, the definition of forgiveness means forgetting and forgiving. One of my favorite, favorite stories uh, or, or people, heroes in the Bible, my favorite, other than Jesus himself, is jo Joseph in the Old Testament. You see, Joseph was taken by his brothers. He was lied about. He was thrown in a pit. Then he was taken, sold as a, as a, as a, uh, a slave to Ishmaelites, slave traders. Then he was lied about by Potiphar's wife, and he was thrown into jail for a period of 13 years. Can you imagine from a lie, just the justice system, and you end up in jail for 13 years? But then he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and he was elevated to second in charge, and became the prime minister of Egypt, and the brothers stood in front of him. And they were fearful. And then he said, God brought me to this place, not you. God was able to work all things out for good. But the interesting thing is that when Joseph eventually had his family, he named, he had two boys, two children, he named the first one Manasseh, and the second one Ephraim. And I think the sequence of that is important for us to understand. The first one, Manesha, God has made me to forget. God has brought me to that place where I forgive. Ephraim, the second child, means God has made me to be fruitful. You can't ever be fruitful before you get to the place of forgiveness. You have to get to forgetfulness and forgiveness before you can be fruitful. And it's a stupid response to have unforgiveness in your heart. You see, the forgiveness brings the power of God into your life. It releases others so that God can work. When I hold forgiveness, uh, unforgiveness towards somebody, in a sense, I'm interfering. I'm the blockage for God to come and to intervene. But when I step back and I say I forgive, then God can move in and exercise forgiveness towards and love towards that person as well. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. Sometimes your emotions have been so wrapped up. This person hurt me. You do not understand how much this person hurt me. But you're going to have to come to a decision where you say, it doesn't matter, I forgive. I forgive. The interesting thing here, the interesting thing here is that when Jesus died on the cross, this sinless Son of God, the worst things were taking place. Men were exercising the worst that anybody could do towards Jesus. They nailed him to the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. The same thing happened to Stephen, the first Christian martyr. They took Stephen out. They were stoning him. I mean, his stomach wall was being pounded on. His intestine probably oozing out of his body. His head was being smashed as they stoned him. And he looked up, he had the face of an angel. He repeated the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You see, forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. And when we have been offended or hurt, our job is to respond positively with forgiveness. Forgiveness exercises the power of love. There is no power in bitterness. There is no power in resentment. There is no power in taking offense. Power comes 
from love, not hatred and bitterness. It's a stupid response to be unforgiving. Amen? Have I got you guys? Very quiet. Very quiet. All right. Now we're going to go into two positives. The positive is know who you are in Christ. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of that. We see, we speak ourselves down so often. Yes. We speak down to ourselves so often. But when we came to Christ, when we came to Christ, there was a, a time where we, we, we were down. And we came to Him and we repented of our sin and we accepted His salvation and received His forgiveness and experienced the filling of His Holy Spirit. And it was wonderful. But from then we need to realize that we are children of God. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the power to become children of God. Don't speak down to yourselves. You're children of God. And you need to understand that. You see, there is an inner voice inside each one of us. And that inner voice has got lots of its own opinions. It's never passive. It's got strong opinions. And it's speaking to us all the time. It's either speaking up to us or it's speaking down to us. What is that inner voice saying in your life? It's either filling you with thoughts of confidence in Christ, of hope, of inspiration, or it's filling you with thoughts of fear and worry and conflict. What is that inner voice saying to you? And we mentally repeat stuff to ourselves, and we need to realize as we saturate our minds with the incredible Word of God, we need to say, God, I'm a child of God. I'm all of these things. You see, there is a proverb that says, Proverbs 23 and verse 7, and I think that's, it says, for a man thinks within himself. As a man thinks within himself, so is he. Hmm. Different. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to believe me. As a man thinks for within himself, so is he. You see, there's a Chinese proverb that says something like this. Sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And it all starts off with one thing, and it's a thought. And it ends up with destiny. What are you thinking about? We need to remind ourselves that we are children of God. Let me run through a few things in the Scriptures. First of all, you're a child of God in John chapter 1. You, you're Christ's friend. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says you're bought with a price and you belong to God. You're a member of Christ's family. You are adopted in God's, as God's child in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2, you have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2, you are complete in Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, you are free from condemnation. You have been assured that God works all things out for good. In uh, verse 35, you cannot be separated from the love of God. Philippians chapter 1, you are confident that God will end. He began a good work and He'll end it as a good work. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, You've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And in Matthew chapter 5, God says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. 
And we need to believe those things. Talk yourself up. When you wake up in the morning, you go, good morning, Lord. Not good God, it's morning. But good morning, Lord. I'm the soul of the earth. I'm the light of the world. And I'm going to go out today filled with your spirit, being able to affect and change people's lives. These inner tapes are working in you. Choose what you put on those tapes. What are you putting on those tapes in the morning? A tourist was in England, and uh, actually New York, (laughs) big difference. And it was a cold, snowy night. All that she wanted to do was to go to Carnegie Hall because there was so much activity that she had read about and heard and great concerts had taken place. And she went out of her hotel and the street was empty except for one guy who was walking down the road with a violin case. And she wanted to know where Carnegie Hall was so she could go and visit it. And this musician, obviously, was walking by and said, excuse me, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And he was walking down. He said, practice, practice, practice. (laughs) I'm saying to you, practice, practice, practice. What you put on those inner tapes in the morning. Tell yourself that you're a child of God. You see, negative people can look across the River Jordan and see the land of milk and honey and all that they think about is calories and cholesterol. That shouldn't be the case. (laughs) Develop and practice what you put into your mind. It's important. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. By the renewing of your mind, you will understand God's will. And then it's got different degrees. He's good. You renew your mind more through the word of God. Then you'll find the pleasing. And then you'll eventually find the perfect will of God for your life. Know who you are in Jesus. Never again be negative. Never again will I confess lack. My God shall supply all my needs in Christ. I will never confess fear. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Never again will I confess my doubt and lack of faith, for God has given me a measure of faith. Never again will I confess weakness, for the strength of the Lord is my strength. Never again will I confess the supremacy of Satan over my life, for greater is he that is in me than he is in, that is in the world. I will never confess defeat, for God causes me to triumph in Christ Jesus. I will never confess the lack of wisdom, for Christ Jesus has become for me, the wisdom of God. I will never confess worries and frustration, for I am casting all my cares upon him who cares for me. I will never confess any kind of bondage, for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty. I will never confess any kind of condemnation, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will never confess anything 
or slander his church in any way, because it is Jesus Christ who is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will never confess any sign of insignificance, because Christ has given gifts to every man. I am a servant of the king and priest in his kingdom. Know who you are in Christ. And then the second one, and I'm so glad that Andre spoke about this earlier. Remember his church. His church is people. See, God has a purpose in the world. God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for his church. God's purpose is wrapped up in his people. And his people need to be unified. Let's look at Psalm 133. This is a great passage. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. You know, it, you, you can live, but how wonderful it is to be together in unity. How wonderful a marriage is when you are in unity. How wonderful a family is when you are in unity. How wonderful a business is when you're in unity. How wonderful a church is when they are dwelling together in unity. And then in verse 2, and how it is like a precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. You see, when there's unity, there comes anointing and there comes blessing. It doesn't work the other way. There's first unity and then comes the anointing. And then in verse 3, it is like... It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. His blessing comes when there's unity at the, at the beginning, even life forevermore. You know, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell, this is the birthday of the church, and the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples that were in the upper room. It, it says, and they were together, all together in one place. And God poured out His Spirit. There was unity amongst the disciples. And as a result of that, God was able to pour out His Spirit. When Jesus started with the Lord's Prayer, He didn't say, my Father. He said, our Father. In John chapter 17, the last prayer meeting of Jesus, He's going to go off to the cross in just the next couple of days. And he prays with his disciples five times. Five times in John, 14, he say, John 17, he says, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. The church should be unity. There was a song that we used to sing years ago. Forget about yourselves and concentrate on him and worship him. Forget about me. Forget about my and concentrate on him. There's a stunning story, pretty scary, in Act 6. Ananias and Sapphira are in the church, an offering is taken. The offering wasn't called for, but they just started. They saw the Spirit of God moving and they started to give. And Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they didn't contribute much. And God says, hmm. I'm going to pause the grace button for a while. I know that I'm pouring grace onto the new covenant, but I'm going to reach back into the old covenant and bring judgment. And boom, two people fell dead in the church. 
scary stuff. Why? Why did that happen? Because they refused to be involved in what God was doing. When the rapture takes place, all of us are going to be caught up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. All of us are going to be caught up. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will, will rise first. Do we have a 17? Okay. And it says here, and we, everybody who are alive and remain shall be caught up. It's going to be we. It's not going to be you and then you and then you. We are going to be caught up. And I want to say this morning, don't ever, ever think that the Christian life is about you and me alone. It's us. Let's link arms. Let's link hearts. Let's join hearts. If you, if you disconnect yourself from the life and the work of the church, we begin to drift spiritually. We're not connected relationally. Yes, I can experience salvation. I can grow in the Lord. You can have an experience of His salvation on the mountaintop, in the valley, we're in a forest, wherever. And you can continue to grow. But I want to tell you that you won't, it'll be a challenge to you because without the church, you won't grow much. Without the church, which is the foundation, the message of Jesus travels a lot slower. You say, I love God. And he loves me. And I don't need the church. But that's only a half truth. It's true. But it's a half truth. And it can lead you down a very dangerous path. You need to choose a church where God is honored. Where Jesus Christ is honored and adored. You need a church that believes in the Bible. That obeys the scriptures where people are loved and people are respect, respected and are growing. That's the kind of church that you need. You see, what's more important than what you were born again out of is what you were born again into. That's why choosing a church is so, so important. And as I read the Bible, I see that so much of the New Testament is wrapped up in people, in relationships. If I go back to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, four deal with a vertical relationship, six deal with a horizontal. There's more horizontal commands than there are vertical commands. And as I read the New Testament, I see that God desires and wants us to be so involved with one another. We need to be working with one another. God has called us to be an alternative society and he's given us lots of commands. I'm going to read 30 one another's to you. 30 one another's that tell us that we need relationship with one another, love one another, mutually depend on one another, be devoted to one another, outdo one another in showing love, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, have the same mind towards one another, don't judge one another, accept one another, counsel one another, greet one another, wait for one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, forbear one another, encourage one another, build one another, stir up one another, be hospitable to one another, 
minister gifts to one another, be clothed with humility to one another. Nearly finished. I'm nearly finished, but I'm... Don't speak evil against one another. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another. Fellowship with one another. All of these one another's tell us that we need to be building relationship with one another. We cannot live the Christian life in isolation. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect Christian. But together, we'll be able to help each other to become the people that God wants us to become. Let's look at Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12. It was he who gave some to be apostles and to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers. And then this, this is where the 412 comes from, this verse. The 412 movement that is alongside Josh Jen. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. To prepare God. You see, our job is to equip you. And if you're in isolation, how can we equip you? How can you be equipped to equip you for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up? The body of Christ is just so important. You see, there are two institutions that God has created, He has made. One is marriage and the other is church. Church is God's idea. It's God's idea. And let's look at verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined together, held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Each, as each part does its work. As each part does its work. I, I want to say, we had a community meeting, uh, community leaders meeting on uh, Wednesday evening. And just universally, unanimously, it was agreed with every community that there's just a, a lack of commitment to that group. And I want to just address that for the next little while. We don't ask much of you guys in Josh Chen, really. We, 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 we have a high sense of devotion uh, in, the, in the church, but really if you look at all the hours in the week, 168 hours of the week, we ask for one and a half hours on a Sunday morning and two hours on a Wednesday night. That's three and a half hours. That's probably 3%. If you take a third of that off, you've got 112 hours of wake, waking hours. And we, we ask for three hours or 3%, 3% of your time. We don't ask for 10%. If we had to go that route, uh, we ask 10% of your tithe, uh, of, of your salary. We, 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 we're asking just 3%. But guys, you need to be committed to that. We're a family. You know, for years, our girls, we had a standard arrangement on a Sunday uh, for lunch. After church, they went to the Stellenbosch Church. We came here to Somerset West. Uh, this is where we're serving, and we, we got together for lunch. That was our standard time together as a family. They just didn't pitch. They, they didn't ever not pitch. I mean, if they did, if they had some other appointment that they had to go to, a friend's, they used to say, Mom, Dad, look, we're going to a friend's. We, we just, they didn't just not rock up because that's just not what we taught them. And people are coming or belonging to a community and they're just not even messaging the community leader. And some of them are just saying, sorry, can't make it tonight. Why? Why? This is, this, is, this is the family of God. This is the family that we're going to be 
raptured with. This is the family that we're serving together. This is the family that we are part of an alternative, alternate society. What is the point of getting together? You know, we, we have friends who are still watching online. Josh Jenner stopped that because we know that we can get together now. And this togetherness is just so important for us. It's just so important. It's essential for us to see one another's faces, to be able to hug one another, to be able to look at one another in the eye. You see, when we get together, we understand the Bible a little bit more. We begin to really feel part of God's family. Prayer will become much more meaningful to us. We'll be able to handle stress and pressure much better. I mean, people come to come and they are stressed. I mean, what life throws out at them, they are just stressed. And we are able to pray for them. We are able to speak to them, speak stuff through, and they leave with just a sense of strength. We are able to discover our gifts that we have and to develop those gifts and those skills. We understand worship that much more. We have a sense of belonging. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another out of brotherly love. See, that's why we get together. When we participate with one another, we still have a sense of knowing the priority of God in our lives. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says, Obey the instruction not to forsake the gathering of the saints. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Your faith blossoms as you meet together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to the Lord. So when you come and participate in community, and participate in the life and the work of the church, you are exposing yourself to the value, to the vision, to the mission of the church as well. The more casual your attendance, I want to say the likelihood is the more casual your devotion. Remember His church. Remember His people. We're going to be doing this together with one another. That's a positive response. What was that town called? The Rocks? Rosetta. Rosetto. Good story. We live in community with one another. Repeat often. Know who you are in the Lord. And remember his church. Let's pray together.